Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, July 15th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to lately. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's podcast by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys. So it's Monday. We are finally doing a water cooler after skipping last week. So let's just dive right into it. We have a lot to do. Uh, HT, you're going to be traveling soon. You're going to be going out to San Diego um, for Comic-Con. You have a plane to catch. So we're going to knock this out. And let's start with you, HT. What have you been up to? So I went to, I attended the Crawl Junket uh, this past week. And that is the film starring Kaya Scandalario and Barry Pepper and directed by Alexander Aha. Um, that's the horror film about a killer alligator. So... For the junket, they thought, why not take us out to see some real live alligators all the way in the Long Island Aquarium, which was very far. It um, it took us about two hours to get out there to see some live alligators, and it was kind of worth it because we got to see them eat some live rats. Um, <laughs> they were frozen, so there wasn't any like movement or anything, but uh, they were. It was a it was an interesting 
experience. And the aquarium there was actually quite cool. It was a little bit gimmicky, but it had a nice sort of outdoor terrace where you could see the live alligator feeding in the outdoors. So were you, there. Doing, were you doing interviews with like alligators at your feet, like around you? Or was that like in a setup in a no, separate room or something? How did that work? It was work? set up in a separate room, which was unfortunate because I thought it would, would have been very cool to just have alligators eating in the background while we were interviewing uh, everyone. But no, they set us up in one of those fancy like conference rooms and everything. So it was just the junket itself was quite normal. But the uh, the field trip, to the aquarium was was pretty fun. That's pretty awesome. Uh, what else have you been doing? Uh, so I went to see, I witnessed the Cage in the Park rendition of Face Off in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. So this was something we wrote up on our site um, on Friday. And uh, I saw that, you know, it was in New York. It was close by and I decided to go. And it was a blast. It um, basically takes uh, John Woo's Face Off starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta and sets it in Roman, ancient Roman times. Um, but with all of the tongue in cheek, fourth wall breaking references to John Woo films, Nick Cage films, and all of the ridiculous dialogue that takes place uh, in that movie. Um, there is uh, even a character, um, John Woo, like as he's a character in this play, it's played by an actor who uh, comes in at random intervals and comments on the actions of the characters and whatever's happening in the play. And uh, will occasionally just say, oh, yeah, this is an actual line of dialogue in this in this film. We did not make it up. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. And um, the guy who played um, Nicolas Cage, oh, I don't have the bill on me, um, but he had nailed down Nicolas Cage's vocal tics and mannerisms perfectly. It was pretty eerie actually it was a very great good impression and um at one point they even did a slow-mo fight they had swords instead of guns but they would make sound effects to make it sound like they were guns and also they said you only have one ting left in a, in a sword so it was it was pretty fun um and uh yeah they did a whole slow-mo fight with john Wu coming in to sing somewhere over the rainbow it was just the right amount of ridiculous to do a park play of face off so it was a lot of fun <laughs> That sounds totally nuts. So, Chris, I know that you were you were pretty excited about this when you heard about it, but it was too short notice for you to go. If they were to launch another production of this in New York, is that something you would make a trek out there to check out? Yeah, if I if I heard about it in advance and I could plan accordingly, I would definitely uh, attend. Yeah, it sounds um <laughs> sounds like something worth seeing at least once in your life. Yeah, certainly. I think the the biggest question mark for me going into this was would the actors be able to pull off this sort of lunacy of the Nicolas Cage performance in that movie? And it sounds like they succeeded, HT. So I'm, gl I'm glad that you, uh, you know, that that trip was worth it as well as your um, trip to the Long Island Aquarium. Sounds like you had a productive past few days. I did. All right. So for me, I also had a, a productive weekend. Actually, not this past weekend, but the weekend before that, I hiked Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. I mentioned this on a previous episode that my wife and I were... Uh, sort of training for this big event and um, this is the biggest hike that we've ever done by far uh, the I have, I have some stats here uh, for this hike so it starts at the Yosemite Valley floor which is about 4,000 feet and it ends on top of Half Dome which is 8,839 feet of elevation so that's like 4,800 feet of elevation gain and the total distance was 18 miles this is far and away the longest 
hike that we've ever done. Uh, it took 13 hours and 37 minutes to do the whole thing. So we started at 5.19 a.m. and finished just before 7 p.m. So this was definitely a full day thing. Um, it was pretty insane. I, if you guys go to my Instagram, which is at Ben Pears, you can see some photos that I posted. I, I actually strapped a GoPro to my head during the uh, cables section, which is like the final 400 feet of the ascent. There are these cables that are bolted into the granite rock wall and you have to basically pull yourself up and there are little like wooden slats that are that basically serve as steps that are along the way but it's not like you can just walk up it like a staircase you have to really you know, like pull yourself up this thing and I, I strapped a GoPro to my head and took a video uh, less than a quarter of the way up that thing and it's still like looking back on that video I almost have vertigo it's just like I there are, there were moments on especially that part, which is like the most dangerous part of the entire hike, where I was thinking, you know, this is like one of the coolest things that we've ever done. And then, you know, you would take four or five more steps up and be like, this is insane. Why are we doing this? We're going to die at any second. Like if a, if a gust of wind catches us the wrong way, we're going to be blown off the mountain face. This is like the most terrifying thing. So uh, I'll, I'll be posting a few more photos and stuff along the way uh, on my Instagram accounts if you want to check out what that was like and see a little bit of a, a first person POV thing from that GoPro head strap thing. You can check that out there. Um, Jacob, what have you been up to? I've been up to jack crap, uh, so I'm going to bring up an ongoing debate in my marriage that threatens to derail us every single time we drive by a parking lot, and I'm going to open up to you guys. I want to hear your response to this. I will not present which side of the argument I am on. I'm just going to lay out both sides, and you tell me where you fall. Uh, at Chipotle restaurants, there are signs near the front that say parking for online and mobile orders only. There are no signage uh, for towaways, which means that this is not a legally enforceable sign. It is just a suggestion and a uh, from from the management saying they want those spaces to be used for mobile and online orders. So here's the question: Should those spaces also be allowed use for people who are getting to-go orders who have not done mobile or online but are planning to walk in, get food, and immediately leave? Should they also be allowed to use those spots? Bear in mind, this is an argument I've been having with my wife for years. One of us is one of these sides, and one is the other. Which one of us is correct? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Uh, I, have a, I, have a, I have a question. Do the people who do online and mobile ordering, is the order brought out to them? Uh, yes, very, very, actually very recently the uh, orders are placed on a shelf by the register so they can, come, they can walk in and grab it and leave. Okay, so, so the orders aren't brought out to the car, though? They're not out to the car, no. I would say if the orders were brought out to the car by employees, then those spots shouldn't be used for to-go orders. But at the same time, I'm also kind of struggling a bit because I feel like if you're getting a to-go order and it's the lunch rush and you're stuck waiting in line for a long time, you're taking up that spot for somebody who's maybe trying to get their meal quick so they can get back to work faster, which could screw somebody over depending on where they have to park. I guess, I don't know, that's, that's kind of tough. Yeah, I think there's a lot of context that has to go into this because like in L.A. in the, the Chipotle that I go to, the parking lot has, I don't know, maybe enough room for 10 total cars and a couple of those are handicapped spaces. And so you have to find street parking somewhere. But if this is like a sprawling parking lot where there's a lot of parking availabilities, that would sort of factor in. So what's the situation like on that front, Jacob? 
The situation is that it's a parking lot of maybe about 30 spaces, but it's next to a very popular bar restaurant, so it's always an ordeal. Hmm. Uh, HT, Chris, what do you guys think about this? Uh, I'm, I don't think it's, I, if, if you're literally using it to run in and run out, even if you're not an online person, I think it's okay. I'm also, I have like a knee jerk reaction to parking spaces like this. Like, you know, uh, handicap spaces, absolutely appropriate. Those need to exist. But when I go to the market and it's like, this spot is for expecting mothers. I'm like, get the hell out of here. You don't deserve your own parking spot. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wow. Man, I was not expecting Chris, such a oh hot take so early in the morning. Jeez. No, I, I have no sympathy if you're having a baby. Get away whoa. from me. <laughs> Pregnancy is difficult, Chris. It's the planet is overcrowded. Oh you're choosing <laughs> to bring more screaming children into this horrible world. I'm not giving you a parking spot. Chris, what happens don't... when Peter leaves the podcast for one day? <laughs> this happens. Chris, for, for somebody who doesn't like getting bothered on, on the internet by people complaining at him you were going to get ruined for this take <laughs> by who what mothers get away from me i don't care mommy, don't underestimate mommy bloggers they are scary and also get away difficult a human body is a metal is a metal piece of work and it's the fact that pregnancy is a thing at all is amazing and so for, don't don't fade on expecting mothers for it's the hard. record for the record, let me say I don't take those spots. I just when I see them, I grumble. I'm like, <laughs> you don't deserve that. But I, I would never park in it like a jerk. But I feel like this, when you're literally parking to run in and get something and leave, I think it might be okay. But then again, you never know what can happen. Something could go wrong in the store. The you know, it could end up costing someone else their spot. So uh, it's it's a it's a slippery slope. But I also don't I, think it's it's let like. Let it be said here that Chris um, puts above expecting mothers people who are in a hurry to get their order. <laughs> That's a useful I, thing. It's it's useful. They need to eat for fuel and I don't know. They're baking a baby inside their belly. <laughs> yeah, but <sighs> Chris, if you're if you're this upset over a pregnancy spot. I need to inform you about uh, a spot at my local Barnes and Noble called Superhero Parking Only. That's only for war veterans and firefighters. <sighs> I mean, I guess that's all right. I don't know. <laughs> Over mothers? <sighs> what? The, what is so special about mothers? I hate this. This is where everyone's gonna be like, oh, it's the second most painful thing that a body can experience apart from being burned alive. Yeah, but you're like choosing to do that. You don't have to have the baby. You don't know what's going on in this current (sighs) environment. (laughs) Okay, all right, all right, all right. I gotta, I gotta. HT, I need your take on the Chipotle lot so we can move on. I don't care. I don't, I don't drive anymore because I'm in New York. (laughs) I think I, if if they were bringing the food out to them, I would be annoyed by it because there's been times where I've done a pickup order at like a sit-down restaurant to go, and they have spots that are designated to pick up the order. And they're taken by people who aren't getting pickup orders. And then they, they're they like, where are you at? It's like, I'm in the parking lot. And then they have to try and find me. And I end up having to get out and get my food anyway. All right. Well, this was all extremely unhelpful. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're happy, Jacob. Well, wait, what side are you on, Jacob? You I'm on the us. side that, that, that to-go orders should be allowed to park in the mobile spots. Because you uh-huh. in five minutes. See? So there. I agree with you. And also, you agree with me that mothers don't deserve their own spots. <laughs> don't put me in that camp. <laughs> mothers are nature's greatest 
creation. Look, I should. I let me let me add the caveat here that I'm mostly kidding. I, I don't feel this strongly about mother parking spots. Please don't come after me, mothers. I'm I'm mostly kidding. I think well, we need to buy Chris a pregnancy belly so he knows what it feels like. Look, I've I've had pretty much that for the most of my adult life. I don't I don't need a I don't need a fake one. <laughs> All right, so let's if we can let's try to move on from this blistering hot take. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to recently? I forget what I've been up to just because I'm so <laughs> floored by what. Oh uh, no! Um, this weekend I got together uh, with my friend Ben who is uh, opening up an escape room here in our town. Uh, and uh, a few of us got together to uh, plan the game flow uh, for the first room that will be opened uh, when the you know business itself opens in like a, a month and a half or so. Once the like it's I, th- I think that's when it is. But yeah, so it, uh, it was really interesting just to like kind of walk through the process of uh, planning the, the steps for the puzzles and how people solve them and what they lead to and how obvious the clues need to be make um need to be made uh it's part of it comes from like you can buy these kits that give you uh like a very basic structure for like what to do but then most people when they get those kits they just take them and adapt them to their own narrative and uh puzzle solving process so uh that's kind of what's what was going on here And, and it was just uh it was a cool kind of inside out experience and you know knowing what it's like to go through escape rooms and then figuring out how to make it uh, challenging, but um, and also not hard enough so that people are discouraged by it. And it's, yeah, it's just uh, it was a very in- insightful process, and I had a lot of fun coming up with uh, the various puzzles. So, how much trial and error is involved in something like that? Because it seems like there would be a lot. How do you, you know, as a small group who's designing something, how do you sort of account for like what you anticipate the pop, the general population's reaction to be to something like that? So at, at this point in the game, it, it's uh, it's kind of a process of where the, the original idea starts off between like two or three people, the people who are um, my friend Ben and my friend Katie, who are the two main people creating the business. And then um, there's a couple other people involved who will be responsible for creating like the, the props and pieces that are involved in it. And so like when I had gotten there, I'm kind of like the next line of determining what works and what doesn't, because I once I as soon as I arrived at the room, they were like, OK, like, if we can tell you this. Like what? What would you do? Like, uh, how, like how would you solve this? How would you approach it? Uh, to see if it's something that is difficult, something that makes sense, that kind of thing. And then uh, after that, the next kind of line will be after the the room is structured and the puzzles are all in place. We're, um, we'll have like kind of like a beta testing thing where we bring in people who haven't been involved in the process at all, some of our closer friends, to go through the room and see how they do it, so that we can test and figure out okay, what works, what doesn't, maybe what needs to be adjusted slightly, what what's too hard, and that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to hear about the the progress and how everything, how everybody reacts to it when this actually opens. So definitely keep, yeah, us, for sure. keep us in the loop. Um, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, I think you're the only one of us this week or this past two weeks, actually, who's been reading anything. What have you been reading lately? Yeah, this is more of a, I found a cool thing I want to talk about briefly, um, won't comment, but I found a copy of King Size Kirby, which is a coffee table book. That retails for $200, and I got it for 50 bucks, brand new at a used bookstore, still shrink-wrapped. And uh, I'm not too sure if I would have paid $200 for it, but if you're a fan of uh, Jack Kirby, the uh, famous, iconic even, uh, Marvel and uh, artists who drew early Captain America, drew Fantastic Four, drew pretty much all your favorite characters throughout the 60s, uh, it is a massive book. It is one of the largest books I've ever seen in person. It weighs... 
like a wheelbarrow full of bricks. And it's just it, it's pretty much a collection of his greatest hits, like uh, issues from the 40s through the 70s of various things. Uh, these are all Marvel. It's give you a, an excuse to like really take a close, massive look at his work. And if you happen to find one of these marked down, I'm not sure like I'm not sure if $200 is worth it uh, for very very few books I'd pay $200 for. But this is a very cool thing. If you happen to find a copy for a good price, I recommend it just so you can really take in the art. But I really want to talk about the final issue of The Walking Dead. I think if we I can't remember if it was last week or week before, but uh, it was announced one day in advance that The Walking Dead was ending with issue 193. And I'm going to go into mild, mild spoilers here because I think I wanted to address this final issue in some way, which is that after massive events of one of issue 192, 193 jumps forward an unspecified number of decades. Like literally, it jumps to a point where it's either it's between 20 and 30 years after 192 to a world where. Humanity has literally moved on from the zombie apocalypse. Zombies are still out there. They're still a thing. But humanity has adapted, and civilization has regrown in a way that ha- that has to, in a, in a way so that people are now living with the ongoing threat and just you know going about their daily lives in the same way that you know you go outside and there's a chance a car may hit you. Oh, there's now a chance there could be a zombie out there. That's kind of how people act about zombies in the final issue of The Walking Dead, and it's very much a one-off. Here's where everybody is. Here's where survivors are. And here's like the legacy of the people who died, but it's a really optimistic ending. It really suggests that you know Robert Kirkman, the writer, believes that humanity uh, can overcome you know traumatizing events, and that people will ultimately care about people. And, and in the notes, uh, in the final essay he writes, in the uh, when the issue is over, he notes about how he originally had an ending that was, pe- was pessimistic, where, where everybody died, where he uh, was going to have the zombies dominate the earth. And 10 years later, after he originally envisioned that ending, after he had a family and after he'd grown older and after he had, you know, grown in his, you know, maybe wiser, uh, certainly richer with The Walking Dead TV show, he turned around and said that he didn't believe that anymore. He did not believe that the world was hopeless and futile. And he ends this massive, you know, goodness, uh, nearly 20 year long comic book run on a genuinely upbeat, hopeful note. And I think it's worthy of praise that a series that was so often about shock and awe and killing people ultimately came down on the side of we're going to be okay, which was nothing I thought I needed from this comic series, but turns out I did. It reminds me a lot of Spielberg and his thoughts on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and how they changed over the years. Yeah, for sure. Uh, All right, let's talk about what we've been watching. So Jacob and HT, you guys watched Stuber. Uh, tell us about this and whether you liked it. I don't think I've seen actual reactions from either of you, so I'm curious what you guys thought about this one. Yeah, I saw it at South by Southwest for the first time a few months ago when they were showing an early cut. And other than a, uh, the one thing I noticed in the theatrical cut is I believe there's a, a gag involving a penis that is uh, much briefer in the theatrical version. But other than that, it's very much the same movie I saw. And it's very much a boilerplate bloody, a buddy movie. I think the action is very bad. It's very badly shot action. But anytime it's Camille Nanjiani and Dave Bautista in a car arguing, I'm very much on board. I think these two have such incredible chemistry, and they're so funny together. And it's very much a classic, you know, buddy setup. They're both opposites. You have Camille Nanjiani, who's the very modern, sensitive man, and you have Dave Bautista, who's the you know middle-aged, gruff, rough cop. And there's literally a fight scene where they're beating each other up. And Camilo Gianni screaming at him while hitting him over the head. It's okay for grown men to cry. 
and it's that kind of dynamic. I really think Stuper is very funny. It's nothing, nothing earth shaking. And if it was anybody else in these roles, I'd probably be writing it off. Man, I want Dave Bautista and Camille Nanjiani to star in everything. Uh, but HG, I think you're a little more lukewarm than I am, right? Yeah, I'm not as warm to Stuber as you are. I thought it was perfectly fine. Um, I will agree that Dave Bautista and Kamal Nanjani are the perfect uh, unlikely pairing. They are so funny together. And yes, I would watch just two hours of them just driving and, and bantering and bickering the entire time. Um, and I especially like that... Um, Kumail Nanjani's character wasn't the comedy mule like expected, like I expected him to be because he is the more experienced comedian, so I expected him to be kind of shouldering much of the comedy. But Dave Bautista really steps up to um, do a lot of slapstick, a lot of physical comedy, and in the end, he's kind of the more the wacky character versus uh, Kumail Nanjani's straight, straight man. And I enjoyed that um, reversal a lot. Uh, I do think that the film is a little bit too by the numbers um, and that the writing isn't as sharp and the jokes not as, aren't as funny as these two deserve. And yeah, the lazily shot action scenes kind of grinded my gears because we have, there's one scene early on in the film where um, Dave Bautista is fighting equal ways from the Raid films. And in any other film, this would be a really exciting fight, a great team up because these are two um, renowned uh, fighters in their real life before they, um, and, as well as actors. And yet the scene is shot so shoddily. There's a lot of rapid cutting. You can't see the action. And it's very much just like the Hollywood way of shooting action. Um, that felt like a real shame and a loss to like, and a waste of like this, this pairing together in terms of just like the fight. So um, I would say it's a, it's a solid, it's like, it's a fine movie. Um, it is a little bit too boilerplate for me, um, but I really do want to see more of Kamal Nanjani and Dave Bautista together. HC, you and Chris watched Crawl. Did you like Crawl more than you liked Stuber? I did. I was actually surprised to find out how much I liked Crawl. Um, schlocky B-movie creature features are not really my sort of genre, and yet I found myself enjoying Crawl quite a bit, despite the really clunky dialogue and uh, some of the questionable acting. But it's a tight 90-minute, I think it's only 87 minutes, actually, a tight 87-minute thrill ride that really just grabs hold of you and keeps keeps you on edge the entire time. Um, it is, I did kind of wish that it was, it leaned a bit more into those schlocky B-horror roots because the the level of the production, it's a little bit too high quality to be just B-movie, despite the dialogue feeling like it came right out of a B-movie. So it kind of is like a weird, straddled a weird line there, but uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I, I think that Kaya Scott Scodelario uh, is a star. She's great in this movie. Chris, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty much in, in the same boat. Um, I, uh, it, I love how short it is because you know, more often than not, movies are, are just too long these days. And this is this this breezes by. There's like no fat on it, which I, I really appreciate. Um, I do agree that I wish it were it leaned more into its, its B movie elements. I mean, you know, I didn't want it to be like a winking like Sharknado movie. That's not what I'm looking for. But there are times where I, I felt like it, it, it takes itself just a little bit too seriously. And it, it, it's a weird juggling act because I want it to, you know, sort of take itself seriously because that's part of the fun, but it takes itself just too seriously. But beyond that, I, I had fun with it. it it's quick. It's, 
it's uh, entertaining. Um, it, it, it's it's a good uh, summer movie. It's the ultimate summer movie where you're just looking for something to watch. You don't want to invest too heavily in it. You want to be entertained, and you you know you want to get in and out. And uh, you know, so if you go, but like if you're looking for a movie about killer alligators, this movie delivers on, on that front. So it, it gives you what you want, basically. Awesome. Chris, what else have you been watching? Uh, look, I got to get this off my chest because I'm like filled with anxiety now. I was kidding about the mother thing. Please, please, <laughs> please don't yell at me, Internet. I was 99% kidding. There's like 1% of me that was serious. That said, uh, what else did I watch? I watched The New Hellboy with David Harbour um, from director Neil Marshall, who directed The Descent and some Game of Thrones episodes. And uh Everyone, you know, by now probably knows that this film did not do well and it got savaged by critics. But I'm always willing to give things a second, you know, a, a chance, you know, even if I hear they're terrible. I'm, I'm you know, I, I want to see for myself. And boy, uh, I would actually say that the, the, the criticism against this movie undersold how bad it is. This is a, a laughably bad, poorly put together film. The, the, the special effects in this, in this movie, whenever they're, they rely on digital effects, they're so like clunky looking. They, they look almost as bad as, uh, the, the CGI, the rock in the mummy returns, which is, which everyone knows is, is just atrocious looking. And, you know, David Harbour, man, he's trying really hard and he's doing the best he can with this material. But it's such a a waste and it just makes you all the more angry at how Guillermo del Toro pretty much got screwed over. They, they, they took this away from him to, to do whatever this is like, he, you know, for he's for years, he, he wanted to make that third film. And he, now it looks like he never will. And, you know, for what? So they could do whatever this is. It's it's it was, it's a little disheartening. Oh, man, that's a bummer. So, Jacob, I know you're a big fan of the um, the Hellboy comics. I don't remember. Did you ever see this movie? No, I'm waiting until I can pay as little as possible to see it on uh, on Amazon Prime or something, because once the word came out about how bad it was and and how far it totally off it is from the comics, I I just gave up on it because the whole point of rebooting it, I thought, was it was something that's closer to the comics because I love the Del Toro movies, but they're Del Toro movies. They're not an adaptation of what's on the page. And this just seems like a meat-headed piece of crap. And um, even though Mike Mignola, the creator's name is on it as a screenwriter, it is not what I want out of the Hellboy movie. So I'm going to wait until I can see it for a dollar or less. Brad, this seems like a movie that you actually would have sought out and tried to to give a fair shake to did you ever see hellboy or did you skip this one no i skipped it too i i almost tried to go see it but it's uh i didn't have i don't don't remember why but i didn't have time to catch it when it first came out and then because it bombed so poorly it was out of theaters super quick so i didn't Mm -hmm. get a chance to to even see it like on a second run um I, i will give it a shot at some point but i'm not rushing to see it either just because of how bad the reviews were gotcha uh chris what else have you been watching uh, the other thing I watched was Shazam, which is fun. I, I liked it. It's um, it's no Aquaman, let me put it that way. But I I, I had I had, uh, I I had fun with it. I think the villain, you know, no no offense to Mark Strong, who you know does the best he can, but I think the villain is really boring and weak and the least interesting part of the movie. But you know the, the you know the Zachary Levy stuff where he's you know basically just 
riffing on Tom Hanks in Big, where he's a kid trapped in an adult's body, is is very funny and very charming. And it, it's a movie that has its heart in the right place. Um, I, I wish it were just a little bit better. Uh, I wish like the script had gone through like another rewrite to iron some things out. But beyond that, uh, I had I had fun with this. I enjoyed it. All right, uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, I finally got around to seeing Annabelle Comes Home, uh, and I really liked it. I, it's, I think it's actually probably the best in the Annabelle franchise, and I actually enjoyed Annabelle Creation quite a bit. Um, but this is just such a fun kind of grab bag of a lot of different uh, spooky characters. And like like Chris and Jacob have both said, it's like this haunted house full of uh, spirits and demons and objects that are auditioning for the next Conjuring spinoff. Uh, and the Ferryman definitely is the best one in this movie, but, uh, it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's fun. It's, uh, I like that it doesn't go for a lot of cheap jump scares. It goes for suspense and tension. Uh, McKenna Grace is fantastic in this movie. I'm really excited to see her in the new Ghostbusters movie after seeing how good she is in this. Um, yeah, it's, it's just full of a lot of really intense and, uh, just fun horror sequences. And, uh, it, it really does make me wish that Gary Doberman was, uh, more involved in the next Conjuring movie because this is exactly what I want to see from from that universe. All right. Uh, you've also watched the first episode of something called Being Funny. I've never heard of this. What is this? Yeah, so this is a new show that is on NBC, and it's uh, basically it seems like it's NBC's replacement for not having Last Comic Standing anymore. It's a, it's a, a competition show for comedy uh, where they're basically doing have a lot of different comedy acts performing and figuring out who is the best. So it has everything from uh, stand-up to sketch comedy to like weird gimmicky things. Like there's this guy who like puts on a bunch of makeup and a shiny suit and pretends like he's this uh, robot stand-up comedian. Uh, it's they have like the mu- musical comedy acts, all this kind of stuff, and it's uh, very much a a safe network comedy competition show uh last comic standing at least had some edge to it this is just uh very basic and boring there was only one bit in the the entire first episode that i really enjoyed uh and it was a sketch comedy group that they did um a sketch based around a kid show where one of the cast members is missing and they they bring in the sound guy to replace him because he knows exactly how the show goes uh and during the kids' songs where they're, like, teaching them about stuff, he keeps inserting weird conspiracy theory things into in songs. Uh, and that, that was a great bit. But otherwise, it's just it's really stale stuff. And, like, I'm surprised by um, how the judges react to some of this. Like, there's some things that are not good, and they're like, oh, my gosh, this was so great. And the judges are Keenan Thompson, uh, Jeff Foxworthy, and Chrissy Teigen. I don't know what the fuck Chrissy Teigen is doing here because, A, she doesn't know shit about comedy, and, B, I just find her to be just an insufferable personality on shows like this. I know a lot of people like Chrissy Teigen. I understand that she does cool things on Twitter and has a big, you know, celebrity personality. I don't care about her. I don't like her on shows like this. Um, But it's just, it's weird because it feels like they're being very forgiving about this just because it's a, it's a network show and it was very frustrating. And I just, I don't know if I'm going to watch any more of it. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So a a ringing endorsement then from Brad. (laughs) Uh, what bring else? back last comic standing nbc geez <laughs> what else have you been checking out uh and then i watched the first episode of cnn's new series the movies which is uh, basically just kind of like a, a docuseries that they have a lot of talking heads with uh filmmakers and critics and um cinema cinema experts talking about various eras and decades and uh motifs in films the first one 
uh, was focused on the 80s, so uh, hits all of the signature footnotes of the movies that were good during that time. It's more, it's not really a series that is for uh, people who are ingrained in cinema like us. It's a, it's a lot of surface level kind of observations, things that you'd watch and be like, well, yeah, of course, yep, I know this, uh-huh. Um, but it's still fairly enjoyable to, to watch just because you get to see a lot of big filmmakers uh, professing, you know, what they love about these movies and, and that kind of thing, uh, like Edgar Wright and Paul Thomas Anderson and Brad Bird. Tons of cool filmmakers are all over this series. Um, so, yeah, it, it just started on CNN last week. The um, I think the second episode just aired last night, which was based in the 90s. Uh, and then they have I don't, I don't know how long it, it's running, but they're having a new episode every week. And uh, it's a, it's around I think it, it's, it plays two hours uh, and it ends up being like around an hour and a half total uh, of viewing time for it. So it's it's enjoyable, something fun to put on in the background. Um, but like if you're you know, it, it's more so for people who aren't as ingrained in movies like we are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, HT, what have you been checking out recently? Uh, I watched Stranger Things Season 3, um, and I know that you guys uh, did a spoiler review of this, so I'll keep it brief, but um, I I liked it. I liked it better than Season 2. I thought it, I thought it was much more better paced. They, they had more things for the characters to do, and um, the I did have some issues with some of the storylines. Uh, I was not a fan of, uh, of Hopper and Joyce's um, sort of subplot because I had my own issues with Hopper's characterization in this season. I know that there's reasons for his being the way he is. He's he's dealing with years of trauma and alcoholism. And that's something that won't be dealt with overnight. But I felt like the way that this show approached it was something akin to romanticization of it. And I was not a big fan of that. But um, I really liked uh, all the other storylines. And um, I did like the sort of pro- uh, the body horror approach to um the the monster this season even if uh it is kind of a rehash of the last couple seasons but it was fun cool uh what else i watched a film called women at war it's an icelandic film um it's like a comedy drama that will actually soon be getting an english language remake directed by and starring jodie foster but uh this film is hilarious and dark and um a very a, a very sort of strange black comedy. It's about a woman who is a 50-year-old environmental activist who uh, is um, a choir teacher by day and moonlights as an eco-terrorist by night, essentially. And uh, as she starts to wage this one-woman war against the local aluminum industry in Iceland, uh, she starts to gain the national attention in which she's deemed uh, you know, a big organization uh, when it's in fact only this middle-aged woman who's acting out um, against with a bow and arrow essentially and it's really funny um, but it's a little it's definitely something that um, straddles this interesting tonal line between comedy and drama and um, has some precious moments of grief as well um, and emotion so it's it's a great film and I highly recommend it it's streaming on Hulu now Um, so that's a woman at war and um, I also saw The Farewell, uh, which is a movie I dearly loved. Definitely is my favorite movie of the year now. Because it shot its way to the top after I saw it. This is Lulu Wang's um, feature film based off her own experiences in which she, um, her, fam- her grandmother was diagnosed with cancer and her family uh, 
basically decided to lie about this diagnosis so that she would live the last few months of her life happily. And this is such a deeply affecting, surprisingly funny film um, that is very frank and candid and, and felt so authentic, especially to my own experiences. Um, I felt very seen by this film, even more so, I think, than any of the other Asian American films. And we've had quite a, um, a, a lot of them. So I've been feeling, I'm feeling very blessed right now, especially with The Farewell coming in and, and having something that was just um, so poignant and so uh, sharp and rich and funny and um, uh, dealing with little some of the darker issues that we haven't seen in um, with Asian American uh, portrayals on screen, such as the idea of saving face uh, and how that pertains to a lot of Eastern communities and uh, Eastern East Asian um, cultures, um, and that idea that it's better to to save face than to be truthful. Um, and uh, I I really like that it doesn't um, approach this uh, concept with any sort of patronizing or um, condescending tone. It just does it so authentically and so uh, with such rich, deep understanding of everything. And um, the characters are all so fleshed out and great and it's beautifully made film. I highly recommend seeing it. It just opened in select theaters. Uh, in New York and LA this week and will be expanding next week. But The Farewell, one of the best movies of the year and just a gorgeous, gorgeous film with a uh, wonderful turn from Aquafina. So from a, a touching true life drama to an <laughs> 80s, a bizarre 80s fantasy, what was the last thing you watched? I watched Dark Crystal, or The Dark Crystal, I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm going to be covering uh, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance panel at Comic-Con mm, this coming week. So I wanted to prepare myself, and I had never seen The Dark Crystal. I have seen some of Jim Henson's works. I actually haven't seen a lot of the Muppets films, which I, is a big travesty, I know. But I really like Labyrinth, and um, I was always interested to see uh, The Dark Crystal and, and see what that was like. And this is... <laughs> Definitely a bizarre, strange, and interesting film. Uh, this is a film that has no human characters in it at all, which I think was really bold and audacious. And if it's set in this um, high fantasy world uh, filled with all these different races. It's hard to explain in like a bite-sized uh, summary, but it is such a lavish and ambitious film. And I, I applaud Jim Henson for for doing this and kind of living his dream because I know that he had this ambition to make a feature film that was solely of his puppet creations and he does it so well with The Dark Crystal. I was also interested to see that there was a little, little bit of rotoscoping and uh, stop motion animation used in this film as well. It wasn't solely puppetry, um, but it made it feel so much more um, tactile and um, alive, I guess I would say. So it, this is a, it's, an interesting film. I wouldn't say I, I liked it. It was just, it was very dense, um, but I well, I understand why it became such a cult sensation. Awesome. All right. Well, HG, I think you have to go catch a flight, right? Yes, I have to head out. I'm going on an airplane to the West Coast. So when I see you guys next, it'll be on sunny, in sunny California. All right. Well, travel safely and uh, tell people where they can find more of your work before you head out. You can find me writing every day at slashfilm.com and I'm on Twitter at htranbuie. All right. Thanks, HG. Thanks. All right, Jacob, let's move on to you. What have you been checking out recently? 
Uh, I realized my wife had never seen Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, so we watched that, and that movie is so freaking cool. I know it's gone through this roller coaster of reactions over the decades, so when it was first released, it was the attempt to turn the Halloween series into an anthology film series, where each entry would be a different uh, story set at Halloween, and it was a financial disaster, so the Halloween 4 brought back Michael Myers, but Halloween 3 remains this really strange anomaly, this one-off... Uh, deeply bizarre horror film about Halloween masks and the company that makes them and their dark, sinister plans for the children of the world. And I don't want to say more than that because if you haven't seen this yet, going in blind is a good way to go because this movie goes places. Uh, So actually I want to ask Chris, Chris on the level of one to mass human sacrifices, how good is Halloween three? (laughs) <laughs> is one the best? Wait, what? What are the what are the codes? Uh, one to mass human sacrifice. That's the best one. Mass human sacrifice is the best option. Yes, <laughs> and I would I would put it there. Mass human sacrifice. Uh, Halloween three is a is a delight. Um, I I do think the the pendulum has swung back around, and and most people now agree that it, it's it's this sort of unheralded classic, but. I love it, and I actually find myself rewatching it every Halloween season, along with you know the original. Yeah, it's better than most of the actual Halloween sequels for sure, and I I, I wish it was just called Season of the Witch. That way, we people wouldn't have association with with Michael Myers of Halloween Three. You can just leave that baggage behind. Uh, but speaking of horror movies that I watched randomly with my wife, I watched The Dark, a 2005 movie that. I had never heard of, and it's from John Fawcett, who made the werewolf movie Ginger Snaps a few years earlier, and this is his second and so far final feature film. I mean, Ginger Snaps is such a beloved, you know, cult horror film, and this is a much more lavish film with uh, Maria Bello and Sean Bean playing a estranged couple in Wales whose daughter dies at the site of a strange ritualistic massacre. And then another dead girl who's been dead for 60 years comes back and it seems like they have swapped, like a dead girl came back because the, their daughter died and ghostly shenanigans begin all around the, the Welsh countryside. And it's fine. It's streaming on uh, Amazon Prime right now. And it's not so, it's not bad at all, but I, I do wonder why John Fawcett never made another film after this. I mean, he, he made tons of TV. If you look at his ID page, there's so many TV movies and episodes of television but I don't know why this put him in director's jail. Has anybody else seen The Dark? I have not. Clearly not. It's, it seems long forgotten, but it's, like I said, Maria Bello, Sean Bean, beautiful Welsh countryside, and John Fawcett. It's, it's a strange little footnote that um, doesn't deserve to be celebrated, but deserves to be remembered. So I'm, I'm putting it out here. And finally, um, if you go to Paramount Network on Sunday, you will find about 18 hours straight of Bar Rescue. And this is a reality show where John Taffer, the uh, bar consultant uh, extraordinaire, goes across America finding bars that need help and yelling at them until they get fixed. And apparently it's one of the very few shows Paramount Network has that does good ratings because it will start playing early morning on Paramount Network on Sundays and then not stop until the new episode premieres later that evening. And I am... I'm, a, I'm an unfortunate human where if I start watching a Bar Rescue episode, I have to watch the entire thing, and then I'll watch the next one, and the next one. I have to be pulled away from the TV, because Bar Rescue is ideal trash television. And watching John Taffer, all he does is he walks into the bar, has all these problems, 
and yells at everybody and throws money at them until it's fixed. And then he leaves. And then like the little post credit scene says where they failed in the long run or not. And I, for all I know, John Taffer actually does a really good job in real life and knows what he's talking about. But for me, the appeal of Bar Rescue is John Taffer seeming to think volume can solve all problems. And I find it incredibly entertaining. Does anybody else here regularly fall down a bar rescue hole on Sunday on Sunday mornings? I can't say that I ever have, but anybody else? <laughs> well, I actually, <laughs> actually uh, I had watched this uh, with a friend of mine. I was just hanging out at his, his house. And this was a while back and nothing really was on. And he happened to toss it on. And we ended up sitting and watching like four or five episodes. And it really is something easy to get lost in. It's it's just it's just fun to see what he can do with with the bars and how he improves upon them. And it even like. Sometimes it gives cool ideas to where if you ever have your own, like, just small personal bar of, like, cool stuff you can do in your own house. Yeah, and he has a new show I've not watched yet called Marriage Rescue, where he seems to apply the exact same tactics to people's relationships. And I, he seems woefully unqualified to be fixing people's marriages. But that means I need to watch it and see how he solves broken marriages with volume. <laughs> All right, so that's Bar Rescue, and you can find it probably on the Paramount Network. Constantly, um, all the time, all ten seasons of it. <laughs> uh, so for me, I watched A Matter of Life and Death, which is a Powell and Pressburger movie from 1946. Has anybody else seen this movie? Dude, no. this, is my, this is my Twitter avatar. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Oh, wow, it's, okay. Yeah. All right, so Chris, have you seen this one? Sorry, I was on mute and leaned back in my chair like a lazy bum, so I had to... No problem. No, I have not seen this. Okay. Uh, so, man, this movie, I, I mean, I, I would highly, highly recommend this, and I, I suspect Jacob would, too, uh, you know, talking about his ring endorsement from just a second ago. But the this movie's on Criterion, um, the, the Criterion channel right now, which is how I saw it. It's streaming there. And, God, this is such a gorgeous film. It um it is about this guy who is played by David Niven, who I only know from Casino Royale, not the uh, Daniel Craig version, obviously, but like the 1960s uh, non-canonical James Bond movie. I think that's the only thing I've ever seen David Niven in. And he's sort of like this bumbling, um, I don't even know how you would describe him in that movie and that film, by the way, is, like, completely unwatchable. So I sort of wrote off David Niven as just, like, this goofball, but he is really, really good in this film. He plays a member of the Royal Air Force who is essentially shot down during World War II, and there is a uh, a cloud of English fog where he sort of gets lost in it, and it's almost like a Final Destination type of thing, where, like, he was supposed to die, but death missed him because he got lost in this cloud, and he falls in love with this uh, American radio operator who he's talking to as his plane is going down, and uh, it's this woman who is played by, what is her name, uh, Kim Hunter, and she's really great in this film, too. I'd never even heard of her before. And um, so the two of them fall in love over the radio in, in this, like, last second uh what he thinks is going to be the the last moment of his life basically and then he realizes that he's survived and he tracks this woman down and they you know begin this this sweeping romance and then the the afterlife the conductor from the afterlife comes to collect him because he realizes that he's made this mistake but david niven's character argues that because his situation has changed now and he's fallen in love with this woman whereas he wouldn't have done that otherwise because of their mistake that he is owed more time on earth and it's this really really fascinating thing where the it's like a, a high fantasy mixed with a 
like a, a war romance where the fantasy elements come in where this conductor comes down to earth and has all these conversations with him he, he stops time and david niven's character is like uh interacting with him and everybody else around him is like completely frozen there's this moment where two characters are playing uh ping pong on a ping pong table and the ball freezes in the middle and and um it seems like pretty impressive technology for 1946 um but the the um other world is this really really lush um beautiful looking black and white photography and the architecture and everything is so impressive and amazing so anyway that, that's like the the sort of gist of it and it turns into like this legal drama where um david niven's character is, is trying to like make his case that he deserves this extra time because of their uh, of heaven's mistake essentially um and roger livesey uh, i think is how you pronounce his name it plays a an earthbound doctor who becomes uh david niven's character's like legal counsel and he reminded me a lot of like a younger jared harris um so i thought that was that was pretty cool uh but yeah man this movie is really great and if you have if you're subscribing to the criterion channel right now I would highly recommend checking this out. So, Jacob, I want to I want to turn this over to you for a second. This is one of your favorite movies. What do you love about this film? What I love this movie is that it's this unabashedly romantic uh, World War II story, first of all. I mean, the politics of it is literally it was made uh, to promote the idea of the Allies remaining friends post-World War II and everybody remaining on the same page once Nazis were defeated. And they used that excuse as a launching point to tell this, like, high fantasy romance slash legal drama. And... As you alluded to, all the scenes set in the afterlife are in this like beautiful black and white, and all the scenes set on Earth are in this lush, gorgeous color. And there are scenes where they rotate between black and white, or, or utilize black and white versus color in ways that I think are as impressive as you know as Wizard of Oz. It is incredible cinematography, and it's like this: the romance is sweet. It's extremely funny. It uh, has its heart in the right place at all times. It's a fascinating element of its time, and. I, mean, I, don't, I don't even want to talk about the back half of the film uh, because so many interesting twists and turns happen. But Palin Pressburger, who made, made The Red Shoes and Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, just these um, amazing duo. Every film they made throughout their entire career uh, is pretty much perfect. They may be, they're, they've, never, they've never made a bad movie. And this, when I first joined Slash Film in 2015, and I wrote my top 15 films of all time list, as every new member of the staff does, this was number two, and it is still there. And I own a Criterion Blu-ray. I've seen it projected in 35mm uh, at, a, at a rep screening before. It is just the perfect... It is the reason I go to the movies. It is a genre-tinged romantic fantasy World War II document directed by people who know how to make movies better than 99.9% .9 of every filmmaker who has ever lived. So matter of life and death is a masterpiece. Yeah. It's, you have to watch this movie do whatever it takes to, to track down a copy. If you don't subscribe to the criterion channel, I, I would say it's worth subscribing just for this movie. Like that's how good I, I found it. I was sort of bowled over by this film. Well, the criterion sale is going on right now. So you can get the Blu-ray for 20 bucks. I recommend it. Oh, there you go. All right. So uh, moving on, I also saw a movie called it's a wonderful world. And this was from 1939 that starred uh, James Stewart and Claudette Colbert. And I was, instantly interested just because of the cast but also because of the premise which is um jimmy stewart plays a private detective and he is trying to solve a mystery and he comes across a poetess as they refer to her in this movie i've never heard that word before that was just poet regardless of gender but uh, a poetess played by claudette colbert and it's sort of like a, a screwball comedy where the two of them are 
essentially bickering throughout the whole thing and trying to um, clear Jimmy Stewart's name and uh, save this guy that he knows who has who's been, been framed for murder. And the way that I just described that, unfortunately, is way more entertaining than the actual movie is. And I was disappointed to find that out because it seems like such a cool concept and, and such a great cast to ultimately be such a sort of a... a bland movie um so i cannot recommend it's a wonderful world i saw it on turner classic movie so i, I dvr'd it off of there um but yeah i mean it's fine but the relationship element there which i think the movie really really uh needs you to to believe uh and really leans heavily on did not work for me so i think a lot of the charm is sort of missing from the movie once you pull out that primary element so that was a bit of a bummer uh it's called it's a wonderful world if you want to check that out for yourselves feel free to do that maybe you can seek it out somewhere um <clears throat> i also saw tickled which is a 2016 documentary from uh, david farrier and dylan reed who are these guys from new zealand who discovered the quote-unquote sport of competitive endurance tickling has anybody seen this i i've had this movie in my queue ever since this film played at Sundance and I heard so much about it around that time and I just sort of had it sitting in a queue and never got around to watching it until like two or three days ago and uh god this <laughs> what a movie so has anybody else seen this yeah uh, I, I, it's I've crazy it. yeah <laughs> it is a uh, it's a very surprising film <laughs> Brad have you seen this no, I haven't. It's it's that's one of the movie that's been sitting in my key too. But I have heard how weird and disturbing and strange the turns are in this movie. Yeah, so I, I actually am not even gonna come close to giving away any of that. I'll just tell you guys what I knew about the film, which is basically what I just said. It's it's about these guys who discover discover competitive endurance tickling and try to make a documentary about it, and they are almost instantly thwarted in their attempt by uh this company that sort of runs the the whole industry essentially and it just the mysteries start piling up on top of each other the rabbit hole gets deeper and deeper and these guys refuse to give up and just keep digging into what the hell is going on here and man this is just like one of the most fascinating documentaries that i've seen in a long long time and i knew it would be and i was saving it for the perfect moment and my wife the other day was like let's watch some like you know interesting true crime kind of thing and i was like okay i have i think this is the time so we busted this out and the movie is over and then we i, I re remembered that there was a sort of follow-up thing that was released right afterwards and that's called the tickle king and that is on youtube right now so that's available for free i should i should also say that tickled is available on hulu that's how we watch that so if you want to do this one-two punch i would highly recommend doing that without reading anything about it because the, as you guys have alluded to, the, the twists and turns that this movie takes are um, are totally nuts. And it's uh, a really, really fascinating movie that I don't even want to say what I think it's about because I think that's going to give away too much. Um, but that is called Tickled, and then The Tickle King is on YouTube right now for free. So uh, definitely check those out if you're interested in, um, yeah, like just cool mystery type of storytelling where you're going to spend a lot of time with your jaw on the floor and looking over at anybody you're watching a movie with saying, uh, can you believe this is actually happening? Um, so that's the uh, Tickled and the Tickle King. And then finally, I just wanted to give a really quick shout out to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is a show that I think is beloved on this podcast by pretty much everybody at Slashfilm. And I had not uh, given the show a, a shot yet, but this is also on Hulu. And I finally, my wife and I finally started watching this and I think we're only, I don't know, 10 episodes into the first season or something, but we're really liking it so far. And it's it's got a great cast of characters. It's got uh, that same sort of um, 
you know, lovely heart that you would expect from something that uh, executive producer Michael Schur would have created or co-created and been involved with. I think Dan Gore is the actual showrunner there. Um, but yeah, the, the cast is great. The the office dynamics are a lot of fun. The situations are are uh, amusing, and the the humor is really humor and heart are, are really good throughout. So it's it's like the perfect sort of um you know post Parks and Rec type of show. Um, if you if like us, you were completely caught up with The Good Place and waiting for new episodes of that to air, uh, I would highly recommend checking out Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I know you guys love the show. Any any other um, uh, words of praise about Brooklyn Nine-Nine from anyone? I binged all the first... Uh, when I first started watching it, I binged all five seasons in about a week, and the next week I binged them again. That's the highest wow. praise of any TV show. Man, that is wild. Yeah, so my wife and I are doing the opposite. We we're, we realize that we have, like, I don't know, 120 episodes or something to watch, so we're just sort of taking it slow and, and luxuriating the fact that we have all of this content to uh, that will be there for us when we need it. So uh, I don't think we're going to be going through it at that, that uh, rocket pacing, but uh, I'm glad that it works well if you decide to do that anyway. Um, all right, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, I think you're the only one who has been trying anything bizarre <laughs> over the past week. What have you been eating recently? Uh, so the county fair was in town uh, last week, and there's always something new that uh, to try at the county fair that's horrifyingly unhealthy. That seems um, like uh, like ground zero for your podcast obsession. <laughs> like that, That's got to <laughs> be like uh, a big deal for you. For sure. So uh, this this year, they um, I tried the new thing that they had was there was a um, a food stand that had fried pop tarts. Uh, there's always deep fried cookie dough and Oreos and all that stuff. And every and every now and then there's something new that people have decided. Oh, we can put this in a fryer. And so this time it was a pop tart. Um, it was uh, very good. The deep frying it makes made it taste like a superior toaster strudel. Uh, it was very fruity and warm. And obviously the batter uh, adds adds more to it, and uh, they put powdered sugar on top of it as well. So uh, another fun new thing to to deep fry. Um, and then I also found an, a new cereal. There's a new variant of Fruit Loops out. That's birthday cake Fruit Loops. Um, they are not good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they don't they don't taste anything like Fruit Loops, and they they taste only vaguely like like birthday cake. It was almost closer to like just a plain cupcake kind of flavor with uh, crunchy cereal texture. It's I just did I didn't like it. I, I was uh, pretty disappointed by them. I was hoping for at least some kind of like confetti cake kind of flavor in cereal, but it it just didn't didn't work out very well. Who would have um, thought that birthday cake Fruit Loops would have been terrible? <laughs> I mean, there are some birthday cake flavor things that are that they they capture the flavor pretty well, but I guess cereal is not a good uh, <laughs> good for, format for it. I guess I don't know. <laughs> um, so and then uh, Burger King has new crispy tacos, uh, which seems like it goes against everything Burger King stands for. Um, but the, this is something that I, I uh, had been, had been making the rounds at various like Burger Kings in just small uh, variations. It, like regionally, I think they were testing it out, and now it's like it's it's everywhere. Um, they are one dollar tacos, and that kind of tells you exactly what to expect from a taco that you get from Burger King. And let me tell you, the quality of the taco is very much in uh, conjunction with the price of the taco. They they are not very good. It feels like it was like smashed together after it was deep fried. Uh, there's barely any flavor. Uh, the it's just they're they're not good. They're they're very disappointing. There's you'd you'd be better served 
getting the like a taco or like one of those wrapped uh wrapped crunchy like um tacos like from the freezer section of your local grocery and warming up in the microwave than paying a dollar for these crispy tacos from burger king they are they're bad <laughs> Ooh, man well uh hopefully people will avoid those because that sounds truly terrible so did, did they use like uh like ground up hamburger meat in the in the thing or is it like a noticeably different type of uh you know it's it's definitely taco meat but it's like it's taco meat that's probably akin to like the kind of taco meat you would get during school lunch oh jeez all right well the less said about that the better uh <laughs> when let's move on to what we've been playing and jacob i think you're the only one who's been playing some stuff what have you been playing recently yeah, I spent the weekend with my family, and we're all board game nuts, so I brought, you know, I always bring an Ikea bag full of board games my family, and present the buffet, we play, you know, for hours on end. And I'll talk about two games, one that's an old favorite, and one that was new to us. And the first one is Chinatown. And just the other day, uh, on our Slack channel, Chris was bemoaning complicated board games, and I was trying to uh, defend games where you take a 60-page rule book to try to teach it in an hour to people, and... Chinatown is the kind of game I think Chris would like because the rule book's like four pages long uh, with, with very little text on each page. You can teach it in two minutes and there are almost no rules. It is set in the 60s and you're all real estate in, uh, uh, magnets and business owners in 1960s Chinatown in San Francisco. So the goal of the game is to buy real estate, put businesses on the real estate, and make money. And that's literally the rules. And it's played over six rounds and whoever has most money at the end of the game wins. And this is Monopoly, but good. This is like, imagine if the core tenets of Monopoly, which is owning property, trading property, and making money, was actually worked into a game design that was fun and social and made people actually want to be at the table and engage with each other. Because Chinatown's rules are literally, you get new property, you get new business titles, and then you negotiate. You can literally trade money for anything. You can trade property rights for anything. You can trade businesses for anything. You can make any kind of deal you want. It's literally a game entirely of conversation. It's entirely looking at the board, seeing if you have something somebody else wants, and seeing what they'll trade for it or what they'll buy for it. And it reach a point where like somebody will say, I want this, and that person will say, okay, I'll give you this for that, but only if you get the third person to do this. So you're making all these complex uh, deals and trying to make sure everybody's happy. And it's such a great social game because at the end of the day, you know, logic wins. Whoever has the most money, the, the flat out the most money wins the game. But you need to be able to wheel and deal. You need to be able to, you know, play nice or play mean. You need to make make wise choices. You need to, you know, read a situation. It is a like my wife, who comes from a real estate family, owns this game. She's great at it because she has a father who grew up teaching her how to, you know, literally be a business person. Uh, whereas um, me and my brother, who have no business <laughs> um, ideals whatsoever, always lose, uh, even though we have a great time playing, because. We can never see the bigger picture. We can never play, plan ahead. But there are so few games that they encourage so much on a rule framework that is so simple. And it's made by uh, Z-Man Games. And it's always in and out of print uh, because it tends to sell out when it has a print run. But uh, I watch Amazon. Keep buying your local board game shop. Chinatown does come back. You know, Every few months, they'll come back for a little while then be gone for a bit. And it's straight up a game that nobody says no. When, when it hits the table, nobody is opposed to playing it in any of my board game groups. And I, and I have several of them. So that's Chinatown. It is a remarkably good, remarkably simple game. Very nice. Uh, on the opposite end, uh, I want to talk about Black Hole Council, a game that is 
so complex that my family, who are all board game veterans, looked at me with hopeless eyes as I'm explaining the rules. It's ultimately not as complex as other games, but it just has a lot of moving parts. And the theme is that you are the Black Hole Council. You are the Congress that runs the universe. And each round, you deal out random cards of planets to either tax them, conquer them, settle them, uh, mine them, or toss into the black hole to make room for something else. And the idea is that you have a secret card that tells you which color planet you always want to mine, which color planet you always want to settle, which color planet you always want to toss in a black hole, and so on. And your goal is to always try to make sure your color planets, which are worth points, are on the right category. So that, and so that means that each round, all these cards are laid out. One player is a temporary leader, and only they are allowed to maneuver cards around to the various categories. So you flip over a two-minute timer, and it becomes a game of negotiation, screaming, pleading, bribing, yelling, as everybody tries to make sure that their colored planets are in the right category. But it can't be too obvious, because if people can guess what your actual secret goals are, they get points for it. So you want to make sure you're getting what you want while making sure you're not being too obvious. And if, and if the leader fails too much, then everybody gets penalized. So it's all a game about wheeling and dealing and negotiating, like Chinatown, but a lot more rules. Uh, once everybody reaches the halfway point of the game, they're pretty comfortable playing it. It's uh, a very fun game. I would not recommend it for like you know brand new players, even though it is simple by the sake of you know other things we played. Uh, but that's uh, Black Hole Council. It's, but actually, for the record, if you've played The Resistance, one of the best-selling board games of all time, it's Don Eskridge, the same designer. And if you've played Resistance a whole bunch, which is a game of bluffing and lying and, you know, secret teamwork, and you want something a bit more complex and ready to graduate above the Resistance, uh, Black Hole Council is a really good step up, but it is not something I would toss on a first-time player. <laughs> All right, that sounds kind of personal, Jacob. The idea that, like, if somebody discovers what planet you are trying to rep or whatever, and then everyone around you just teams up to dump all of your planets into a black hole. I mean, that is like, you know, you're getting dunked on to the extreme there. Oh, yeah. That's why in early game, I sacrificed some planets I liked so that people would think I didn't want that planet. So they would start putting it in places where I did want it. I still lost the game, but um, it, it actually made sure I came in second place. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's, before we completely wrap up, let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, Jacob, actually, let's start with you. I'm on SlashFilm.com every single day, and I'm on Twitter, or I'm at Jacob S. Hall, and I'll be at Comic-Con starting uh, Wednesday. So watch my Twitter feed and watch the site for all of our coverage. Yeah, I think we're going to have some podcasts from the you know from the ground in San Diego. I think Peter's going to be putting those together. So uh, yeah, stay tuned for more of that. Um, in the meantime, Brad, where can we find more of your work online? Always SlashRealm.com as well. Uh, I won't be at Comic-Con this year for the first time in, like, nine years. Um, just because it's not a very movie-heavy year. My girlfriend's moving out to me in the next week and a half. And just a lot easier for me to stay and cover it remotely this year. But you can still find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. Uh, remotely, I'll be trying to focus on some of the other things that we don't have time to be in person for for panels, like a lot of the collectible stuff from Hasbro, from Marvel Legends, and Star Wars. So just keep an eye on Slashfilm for all that. Uh, and also my own podcast, Go Flix Yourself, uh, which is available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And Chris. Uh, I also will not be at Comic-Con because I went last year and it made me sad. But... Uh, <laughs> 
I'm on Sashalom.com every day, and I'm not going to give out my Twitter handle in this episode because everyone will be mad at me for my parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's probably a wise move. Uh, you can find me at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about, uh, you know, movies and all sorts of stuff at SlashFilm.com. Um, we're not linking anything in the show notes of this episode other than just links to where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. If you want to, and we encourage you to do this, please send your feedback, questions, comments, and or concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Also, if you do that, please make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It does help us a ton. Please do it if you haven't done it yet. I know I say this all the time, and you probably are just fast-forwarding through this part. Please do it. It takes like two seconds. Tell your friends. Spread the word about the show any way you can. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Hey, oh, Ben. Yes. We're oh, not done. Oh, God. Ben, we're right. not done. Yeah. <laughs> did you think you could escape? Yeah. Did you think you could escape, Ben? I, I did, yes. And uh, Ben, Scott, what is the name of the book? It. You what know, is, what is, is the name the of the thing. book, Ben? <sighs> I cannot believe this because uh, so people might have have realized that Peter last week after failing to answer Jacob's sphinx-like question here, he <laughs> actually wrote down the name and like took a picture of it with his ET doll or something that he keeps in his podcasting area. And I stupidly just leaned back in my chair, interlaced my fingers behind my head and said, Peter's got this. I don't have to worry about it. So I don't know. It, uh, Brad or Chris, do you remember the name of this godforsaken book? The, Something with effrontery in it. Gar- I remember <laughs> the, gar- the gargantuan book of insults. Offense and Offensi- affrontery. Offense and affrontery by Louis Something A. Safian. Safian. Yes. yes. You almost got it. The insult is singular. The gargantuan uh, book of insult, offense, uh, and affrontery. There's, uh, only one, there's only one insult in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I've opened it to the bamboozlers section. <clears throat> that Chris, he always has a lot of trouble with those fluffy, thick hotel towels. He can hardly close his suitcase. <laughs> 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 that Brad... His wallet is always full of big bills. All unpaid. Oh, that is the fucking truth. <laughs> uh, ben, he's oh, he's making money selling... Bo- he's, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to try this over because this one is complex. requires some layers. <clears throat> that Ben, he's making money bottling ashes from a crematorium and selling them to cannibals as instant people. Whoa! Wow. How is that in the same category as somebody who steals hotel towels? Really, that's a smart move. Ben is like an entrepreneur. He's got this great side business where he's selling yeah. ashes. Yeah, I've got yeah, my and... own app and everything. It's just it's people, but it's P L P L E or whatever the hell. Just take all the vowels out. Well, when Chris slaps you on the back, it's only to make sure you'll swallow what he's told you. Wait, I get two? I get two insults? What did I do? Well, and Brad has more crust than a pie. Brad has more crust than a pie factory. Oh boy. I, uh, all right. Uh, well, well, you no, gotta no, get. No, Ben. Ben didn't get a second one. Um, HC and Peter aren't here, so you all get second ones. Okay. Um, at the dinner party, Ben's the guy who sure to eat all the celery. I I do not understand that one. Cause you're poor. Oh jeez. <laughs> 
I didn't realize that celery was like a, a food that was associated with not having any money, but okay. Well, it's because like if you're at a party, no one eats the celery. So I think they're implying like you're going to dig in the trash and oh, eat like oh. trash or celery. Or like the hors d'oeuvres that everybody leaves behind or something. It's just yeah. like a stick of celery. Okay, yeah, I guess I need to go to more parties then or something because this, <laughs> this is not my world. But uh... While we're here, I only recently realized that the Gargantuan book Insult, Offense, and Affrontery by Louis A. Safian has an introduction. Do you do? You, shall I read from the introduction? Yes, for God's sake, yeah. just go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> introduction. Repartee has been defined as saying what you think after becoming a departee, saying as quick as a flash what you didn't say until next morning. Everyone, at one time or another, has had occasion to echo the familiar lamentation. Backward, turn backward, O oh time, in your in your flight. I've just thought of a wisecrack <laughs> I needed last night. Wow. Uh yeah, I, man, I can't tell you the number of times that I've wished I've been able to come up with, on the fly, an insult about somebody stealing hotel towels. 